Mindfulness of death is powerful because it begins to bring about a deep <coughs> questioning, a profound shift of identity. In the face of death, who are we? Welcome to the Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour. We are delighted to share with you Jack's innate common sense wisdom and his clear open heart. If you are interested in supporting Jack's podcast, go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Jack. I'm going to start with a, a little bit of poetry, if I may. And these are very um, particular poems. Um, in the Zen tradition, one of the um, one of the ways in which a Zen master might choose to die is to write a death poem shortly before their death, and an, an a, a authentic death poem. I think it, it only counts if you write it on the day that you die. <laughs> so. Otherwise, you don't get all your points for it. <laughs> so here are a few poems from, from certain great Zen masters. Isa wrote, From one basin to another, stuff and nonsense. <laughs> and then died. <laughs> Master Joseki wrote, this must be my birthday there in paradise. Master Taiyu, though I should live to be a hundred, the same world, the same cherry blossoms. And Zen Master Kiba, my old body, a drop of dew grown heavy at the leaf tip. <laughs> Empty-handed, I entered the world. Barefoot, I leave it. My coming, my going, two simple happenings that got entangled. <laughs> Till now, I thought that death befell the untalented alone. <laughs> If those with talent too must die, surely they make a better manure. <laughs> and from one old drunken Zen master, bury me when I die beneath a wine barrel in a tavern. With luck, the cask will leak. I start with those poems uh, because I'd like to speak about death this evening. I've just returned. I spent most of the week in the hospital in Philadelphia with my father, who I mentioned for those who've come on other Mondays, is um, gravely ill with congestive heart failure. And um, it's been a kind of roller coaster as it is. Um, in dealing with someone that you love, that you're close to, who's dying or seems to be, 
And I have waves of grief and then waves of unreality where my mind just doesn't think about it. It's like nothing's happening. Everything's the same as it always was. Um, and being with my father, he's been quite isolated in his last many years of his life. And so almost there's almost no one to be with him. He's been in the hospital for more than a month. And he's quite isolated. Uh, and it's really sad to see. And he's weak and frail. Um, and being with him, it's also interesting because I see myself a little, not many years from now, um, with, I can sense his own body and frailty and inability to walk and the sounds he makes and so forth. They're just kind of exaggerations of what I already do. <laughs> That's how it is. It's, and there are ways in which it's been one of the sweetest times to be with him for some uh, reason, I think partly because he's become so vulnerable in this state. And I really tried to care for him. He was incredibly grateful and uh, uh, much kinder than usual. He's often been a bastard, really. I mean, I love him, but he's a, he's a tough old guy. But he was much kinder, and there was, there was a kind of sweetness that was very, very special. But he's also terribly afraid. and uh, He's always been somewhat afraid in his life. Um, and now he's afraid he can't breathe sometimes, it's true, and he can't walk, and he can't eat right, and his teeth don't work, and, you know, all the things that start to really fall apart. Um, and he's afraid to sleep because he's afraid his breathing will stop when he sleeps and that no one will be there to remind him to start breathing. And so he's been up for nights and nights and sort of sometimes half hallucinating because he hasn't let himself sleep. And uh, I was just looking at him and looking at someone who hasn't learned at all in their life how to let go. And how difficult it is when you get to where you really need to let go, even to let yourself rest or sleep. He can't do it. It's kind of on alarm. Modern American culture would like to find rebirth without death, you know, some kind of. But it doesn't happen that way. And death is such a mysterious thing. You know, this is the autumn season, and although we don't have it in the dramatic way that one does in more northern climates, still a lot of the trees are losing their leaves, and uh, the, the change of the light with um, the daylight savings time stopping, and the whole sense of the earth going into a darker and more fallow period. Um, it's part of the cycles of uh, death and renewal that is the nature of our life. A good friend of mine teaches or taught young children in elementary school, and she brought her first graders, six-year-olds, out into the woods because they were talking about things dying. And they're very interested in that, children are. They talked about it, and she took them out in the woods, and she said, find for me all the things that you can that have died. So the children went scurrying around, getting old leaves and branches and snail shells, you know, and finding bones from animals that were left and um, nuts and things that were rotting. And 
started to amass this, as children love to do, this huge pile of stuff. And finally said, okay, enough, enough kids now. Sit and let's look at it. And they looked at it and talked about it for a while. She said, then as they discussed it, the question came, what do you think would happen if there wasn't death, if all these things didn't die? And one of the little boys said, well, there'd be more and more trees and things and there'd be no room for us. We're the new ones. So the other things have to die to make space for us to come. In the Buddha's teaching on mindfulness, the most famous of the sermons or sutras or discourses, whatever you want to call them, the teachings that the Buddha gave on the practice of mindfulness and wakefulness that's central to the meditation we've done here at Spirit Rock for all these years. He begins by saying, if you wish to awaken to your true nature, to freedom, find a quiet place to sit under a tree in the forest in a room quietly. Sit yourself up, stabilize your body, begin to be aware of your breath, be aware of the sensations of your body as they come and go. And use that to cultivate an attention. And with that, then it goes on to be aware of feelings in the mind and all of life. But he pauses in that set of teachings after saying, settle yourself down and make yourself stable, being aware of the breath coming in and out and the body as you sit there. Then he says, and at this point, begin to study your own body. Even before you look at feelings and thoughts and mind and desires, Study your body. Study the parts that are made, uh, that it is made of. Hair, eyes, ears, sense organs, teeth, nails, skin, flesh, ligaments, bones, kidney, livers, blood, sinews, etc. Whole long spleen, lungs, all the membranes in the body. He goes through a list of 32 parts of the body. And then he says, and then when you become mindful of that, begin to be aware of death. And picture your own death, which is certain. The only thing that's uncertain about death is when, but not the fact of it. And picture how you might die, the different ways. This is the meditations we did a lot in the monastery. And then be aware of what happens to a body after you die, if you leave it out there and it's not cremated. And it bloats and it rots and then it decays. And there's a description of the 10 stages of the decay of the body, beginning with bloating and gradually ending up with uh, um, a body with parts strewn around a funeral ground and then bones and then dust again. In the greatest Buddhist text written since the time of the Buddha, at least in Theravada Buddhism, the the Visuddhimagga, this thousand-page text of teachings begins with a simple question. It says, this world is entangled in a tangle, the tangle of attachment, fear, greed, delusion. Who can succeed in untangling this tangle? That's the initial question. 
and the thousand pages are the answer to that question in great detail. But the reason I mention that is that central to that text as to the teachings of mindfulness is the mindfulness of death, the awareness of death. So the Buddha taught, just as all other animal footprints can fit inside the footprint of an elephant, which is the greatest of these, so mindfulness of death is the greatest and most powerful of all the mindfulness meditations. Everything else can fit within that. Hi, you kids. (laughs) Now, why is this so? It's a really mysterious thing that it happens to us. There is an acquaintance I know who died, a a man who is well-known in the human potential movement, Jack Downing, um, just last month. One of my friends was there kind of attending and being with him as he died and decided to whisper in his ear the great Tibetan teachings of death just as he seemed to have died, and so she did. She whispered these teachings And then he opened his eyes and he said, could you say that a little louder, please? (laughs) Why is the mindfulness of death so important? The trouble is we think we have time. It's important because it gets our attention. Nothing gets your attention so quickly or immediately as that phone call that comes from a parent or a lover or someone that says, I've just heard this news from the doctor or this is, or a friend you're who's calling to say your brother or sister or mother or father just had a stroke or a heart attack or someone's in the hospital. All of a sudden, or the doctor calls you and says your test results are back. And they, you need to come in and talk to me about them. And all of a sudden, everything changes and you start to pay attention in an entirely different way. And life all of a sudden becomes um, alive and precious because you don't know whether that person or yourself will be around for very long. So it's powerful because it gets our attention And mindfulness of death is powerful because it begins to bring about a deep (coughs) questioning, a profound shift of identity. In the face of death, who are we? Are we this body? And if we're not this body, can we honor it and yet awaken to some deeper truth, to that which is timeless or deathless? So to be aware of that, leads us to discover that which is deathless, that which takes us to fearlessness. I remember teaching with Stephen Levine one retreat that we did together. And uh, I think it was Stephen asked, well, how many of you are are sure you're going to die? And a third of the people's hands went up, right? (laughs) And he's kind of honest. In the Bhagavad Gita or the Mahabharata, Um, there's a place where Arjuna asked Krishna, what's the most miraculous, marvelous thing that you've seen in this great world? 
And uh, Lord Krishna answers, the most amazing thing of all that I've seen is that people can see others die all around them and still believe it won't happen to them. <laughs> now, in other cultures, the understanding of death is still more public. It's not hidden away as much as it is in ours. So that in India, if you go to Benares, which is the holy place to die, and many, many people go there um, because to die and be th have your ashes thrown in the Ganges is to free you from the cycles of birth and death and suffering in life. And if you go to Benares and take one of the rowboats that there are boatmen there from one of the great bathing gods where the pilgrims go to bathe in the Ganges River, they will row you down the river to the ancient temple of the burning gods. And it's a temple where for a thousand or two thousand years there have been fires burning and people bring those who've died, bring their bodies there. And you'd think it would be a very heavy and kind of dark place. But in fact, it's not. It's very peaceful. And there's a sense of a timelessness about this place. And every 15 minutes or so, there's a kind of a palaquin that comes down the great stairs of the temple, <laughs> and people are chanting, Ram Nam Satya Hey, Ram Nam Satya Hey, which is a chant that means the only truth is the truth of God. And then the bodies are dunked in the river and placed on a on a small beer and there's a, pot, a, a fire that's lit under that particular body. Um, and there's some kind of prayers that are said. And then the next body comes. And there's not a sense of something unnatural, but rather a sense that that is a part of the cycles of life as much as the seasons that we see. Now it's said that at the end of life, one of the things that happens when we die is a review of our life. That's what's said in many traditions. And it's interesting, being with my father, I'm sure you've seen it in people nearing the end of their life, that even before death, he's lying there reviewing his life and thinking about it. And he was telling me stories and telling how it was for him, his perspective, and going, what could I have done? My God, I did that, and I did that. Wasn't, and life review is not so easy that the Egyptian Book of the Dead or some of the other great books, the medieval Ars Moriendi, they talk about um, someone there to weigh the souls after you've died or to do a kind of um, evaluation of your life. <coughs> but you know who really does that, don't you? It's yourself. And it's not always an easy thing to do. So one, when one looks at death also, it's really a reminder to look at how we're living now. Shakespeare, in one of his last plays in Cymbeline, wrote, actually it was the gods speaking, no more you petty spirits of region low, hush. How dare you ghosts accuse the thunderer. This is Jupiter, Zeus speaking. Be not with mortal accidents oppressed. No care of yours it is. You know tis ours. It belongs to the gods. Whom best I love, I cross to make my gift the more delayed, delighted. Be content. 
So this is the God speaking, saying, how can you even judge? Maybe I make it harder for the ones I love the most. And then they, they find some learning or some, some gift that comes in that. But no matter what, you, what way, what you think of it, it's what comes to us. <laughs> How are you doing, you kids? <laughs> It's okay, you can play, it's just fine. But just be be a little quiet. Yeah. You're connected in that same sweater, huh? Look at that. So it matters as we come to the end of life, which actually can be any time, is did we love well? When you really come to the end of it and you look at it, there aren't very many questions. <coughs> the chant, the funeral chant is Anijawata Sankara, Upatawa Yadamino, Upakitawa Niruchanti, Desang Upasamo Sukho, which means in this world of created forms, <laughs> Everything changes. Everything is impermanent. Every form that arises exists for some time and passes away. To know this and live in harmony with this brings great happiness or peace. To not know it is struggle. Impermanence is the law. Wherever you look, marriages begin and end. Your childhood arises and passes away. Big surprise. Nations, empires. Empires don't even last very long in modern time, as you've noticed. You know, the British Empire, remember that? <laughs> it wasn't very long ago. Or the great Soviet Empire, enormous. And it's gone. Wars begin and end. Buildings, art, things are created and they pass away. And we too shall. It is the truth. So what do we do in the face of death? And what do you believe about it yourself? In our culture until one or two generations ago, we used to believe in the Christian heavens and hells predominantly. That was the, that was the belief. Now our religion is science, materialism. And so we're, we think we're born from DNA and Darwinian kind of natural selection and accidents. Um, and that's what life is. And then if you ask a scientist like my father, who is so really terrified of dying, he says, when you die, nothing happens because you're, you're this body. And when it dies, then you, you're back to zip, to zero, to, to nothing. So I said to him, well, maybe. But you'll see, it might be different than that, you know. And without a notion of heavens and hells, what we have is many, if not most people, dying in hospitals, attached to tubes and beepers, as if we believe how people die doesn't matter anymore. That it's not so important. 
You are on the second floor of a modern hospital, but you'd never know it. The plane tree hospitals don't look like the ordinary one. Classical music plays softly in the background. Patients wear their own robes and pajamas, sleep on flowered sheets, or encouraged to sleep in as long as they like. There's no nurse's station. It's replaced by a convenient study area where patients are encouraged to read their own charts and write in them there about their condition as well. There are no visiting hours. Friends and family are invited at all times convenient for the patients. There's a special kitchen for family members to care for them. Family members are taught in ways how to care for their partners, changing dressings, IV lines, so that they can help them when they go home. It's a model of a hospital where things are arranged for the convenience of the patient and not the system. Once patients get a taste of this kind of hospital, they simply won't permit themselves to be admitted anywhere else, said a nurse. (laughs) It sounds very obvious when you say it, doesn't it? But it's not the way that it usually is. If you have the privilege of being with someone at that amazing moment when they die, their last breath, um, there's a kind of mystery that you face that there's almost no words to express. The Rabindranath Tagore, the great Indian poet, said that it is like watching the morning star fade in the brightness of dawn that it's there, that morning star, and then all of a sudden it's gone in something bigger. It's the strangest moment. This person is alive (laughs) in some way, and then the body's nothing. It's cast off. If you imagine your own last breath, bring it close (laughs) to yourself. What do you believe will happen when you die? Now, since it's still a little close to Halloween, (laughs) and also because Buddhism in a traditional way teaches this, (laughs) I'll talk about some possibilities. Who knows? The traditional Buddhist teachings are of a picture much bigger than the materialist sense of the body. There are many realms, world cycles, eons, where not only are there empires and, and, uh, you know, nations that arise, But the entire universe comes into being for 10 billion years and then collapses in on itself and does it again and again. And universes appear and disappear with their forms of life. And there are realms, the physical realms, realms of spirits and hungry ghosts and heavens and hells and all of those things. Everything that you could conceive of as a form of life exists because life is created out of consciousness and not material forms. So my friend, who's a hospice director and teacher in Seattle, said this story. I've told you that there were two um, two people attending their father who was very close to death, and they received a phone call that their father's younger brother had died in a car accident that morning. Younger brother was 60, and his father was in his late 70s. Should we tell him? Maybe we should, maybe we shouldn't. It will disturb him. He's very close to his own death. They decided not to tell him, didn't want to disturb him. 
And then they went into his room, the hospice director and two children. Good morning, Father, how are you? Oh, not so good, near death. It's kind of just being with him. And then after a minute or two, he said, don't you have something to tell me? (coughs) What do you mean? He said, about my brother. He died. Well, how did you know? Oh, I've been talking to him. (laughs) Right? And then he called his children up to the bedside and talked to them a little bit, the last words, and then died. So there are lots of stories like that. Or Dr. Randolph Bird at UC Medical Center. He did a different kind of experiment. He had, um, he did a double-blind experiment in which he had two sets of uh, quite ill patients. Um, and for one set, um, he had prayer groups pray for them. And they were just divided at random. And prayer groups in various churches and places around prayed for these 500 of his patients over a period of time. And the other 500 didn't get prayed for. If you were prayed for in this study, it's a published study, you were five times less likely to need (coughs) antibiotics and three times less likely to have pulmonary edema and you were dismissed, you got out of the hospital a number of days earlier than the ones who weren't prayed for. So what do you think? I mean, what is this made of that we live in? I have a good friend who is a professor at Harvard Medical School named John Mack, senior professor, started the Cambridge Mental Health System in many ways, a researcher and dreams and other things, quite, quite well known. And he was recently called in by the dean of Harvard Medical School after a story appeared in the front page of the Wall Street Journal about his current research, which is UFO abductions. (laughs) Said it didn't look good for Harvard on the front of the Wall Street Journal. And John just said to him, well, I believe that the motto of our school is veritas, is truth, he said. And I'm not going to say whether it's so or not, but... Um, do you mean it's not a question that we can ask? And of course, the dean had to uh, bow to that. But he had a patient who came to see him, a, a, a psychiatrist, and he hypnotized this patient because there's some trauma, I didn't know what, and got this amazing story of being abducted and and uh, all these things, and he started to get interested. And so he He let it be known that he was interested in such stories, especially after Aviation Week, which is this most conservative journal of the defense industry, wrote this thing this last year that said that a number of pilots had uh, noted on their radar screens um, vessels moving in U.S. airspace by non-ordinary means of propulsion. This is what it said. I'll let you figure that out. But anyway, um, and as he did he began to interview people, 50 or 100 people all over the country, Minnesota, Maine. And sometimes he would hypnotize them or sometimes uh, some had amnesia. And they would report similar stories, abductions going aboard ships, being probed and tested with different kinds of instruments that were often similar one to another, certain kinds of skin abrasions. What is it? A mass hallucination? They were people who'd never talked to anybody else and it was clearly terrifying and traumatic. So John Mack went to see the Dalai Lama 
and said, you know, do you believe in this? Carl Jung wrote about this sort of archetypal <laughs> group fantasies. And the Lama said, sure, the Buddhists believe in all kinds of levels of reality. We've been, there are all kinds of other beings. This is nothing, UFOs. That's <laughs> <laughs> when you are a materialist, whether a capitalist or a communist or a, you know, a, um, a biologist, your world is very limited if this is all that you think that there is. Remember Sogyal Rinpoche's book. Those of you who read it starts with this amazing story um, of his, his master's great disciple. They were riding on horseback across Tibet on a long pilgrimage. And the master was away at some distance, and his uh, senior disciple got ill and was sick and then sat up and was about to die. And said, should we call the master? He said, no, no, no need. I can do this myself. So he sat up and he started to die. But um, the master's wife decided it would be better to let the master know. So they sent someone, and the master came back within an hour. And he came in the tent, and he looked at him. He'd already died, and he said, um, Oh, Lamaji, or whatever, don't stay in that state you're in, which was clearly he was doing the Tibetan poa, the practice of transfer of consciousness after death. He said, You know, when you do this yourself, sometimes subtle difficulties can come on. Come on, I'll help you. And so, uh, so, um, so Yel said, I was there as a young boy, I guess eight or ten years old. I watched, and I wouldn't have believed it. He came back to life. He was dead. His breath had stopped. He was blue. He came back to life. And then my master sat down next to him and um, began guiding his meditation. And they were chanting together. And they finished the last chant. And he closed his eyes and died properly. <laughs> so the Buddhist mindfulness practice is to recite the 32 parts of the body, hair, hair, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, bones, sinews, bone marrow, kidneys, heart. You do it over and over until you actually can feel each piece, and then you can visualize it. And you sense, that's just meat. It's just part, you know, it's the physical elements. Um, until you find yourself resting in another dimension, in another reality than that. Um, or, as I did, you go sit at the charnel grounds and you watch as they bring bodies and you chant and you picture your own death. And in some of the Tibetan practices, not only do you do that, but you imagine all the <coughs> beings who are hungry in the world, the hungry ghosts, the beings who are, who are in need, and you offer all your good deeds and then you offer your body. You imagine um, taking your body and using it to feed any being that's hungry. Quite amazing. From Chogyam Trumpa Rinpoche. By the time you read this, I shall have died quite happily, having fulfilled my tasks to the best of my ability. Some of you may be saddened by my passing. Let it be a reminder to you of the real fact of impermanence. Actually, whether I'm here or not, you still must follow the disciplines and practices of your spiritual path. Good luck to you. I will be haunting you. Chogyam Trumpa. That's his death letter. So in this last week, someone who was here two weeks ago on Monday night, a beautiful woman, Gloria Zimmerman, came up and said, you know, I'm quite sick. 
she didn't look so sick, but she was. Could you come visit me? Because I'm dying soon. So I said, all right. Um, and I was with her uh, this last week before I went to Philadelphia about six days ago. And then she died three days later. Um, so she was here with us and in that form, and now she isn't. And she was, she's a great heart and a beautiful woman. She was in her late 60s with cancer. Um, and I was there, and she'd done a lot of inner work, of everything from 12-step work and meditation. And we were talking about dying. She says, I don't know much about dying. How do you do that? You know? Um, but I guess it's time for me to learn, she was saying. And she was very funny about it. She was surrounded by her children, and she had a great sense of humor about it. And I chanted with her and read some things from the Tibetan Book of the Dead and so forth. Um, and uh, I left actually feeling better than when I arrived. It was quite an amazing thing because it was so different than my father um, who has had no preparation and doesn't know how to let go. So he can't even let himself sleep. He would doze off for a few minutes and then he'd wake frightened over and over all night long because he was afraid to let go. Or another friend who died of AIDS this past year and who went from being like me, 125 pounds or something, his body became filled with water. And when he died, he weighed 220 pounds. And it was sort of bloated and he couldn't talk well. And I was talking with him and he said, it's very clear. He said, this thing is just rotting and it's not me. And it was quite amazing to be with him. It's time to let go and just be at peace. And we chanted together and we just sat. The koan that the Zen masters give you is, who is dragging this corpse around? Or who, who is carrying this body? Or what was your true face before your parents were born? It's the same question. So the Tibetans, again, say, remember the clear light, the pure, clear light from which everything in the universe comes to which everything in the universe returns, the original nature of your own mind, the natural state of the universe unmanifest. Let go into it, merge it into it. It is your own true nature. It is home the beginning of those teachings. What is your true nature and can you rest in that? When my wife's brother died some years ago, suicide, we were in Florida with my wife's parents the year after that and she was telling her mother the story of knowing that he died when we were in India. I told the story many times. Just the day that it happened, even though it was halfway around the world, she saw and knew, and then we got a telegram a week later confirming it. But her mother said, well, you know, it's funny. And her mother's a very straight-laced person. She said, it's funny. After he died, he came here, and for three months, every evening, he would sit in that chair in the living room and just sit and look at me and your father as we sat in the living room. And it's as if he just needed to look at us and understand something. And finally, after a few months, I got a sense that he understood what he needed to, and he kind of faded away, and he hasn't come since. 
Now, in Buddhist teachings, it's said that mindfulness of death, that the moment of death, is a great opportunity. It's at that moment that a deep awakening can happen, that we can untangle, release a great deal of karma, um, that we can return to our true nature. It's considered so important in the Tibetan tradition, for example, that one is often told not to be around your family because <laughs> it's too complicated and have some llama or somebody sit there with you instead. But to use even that, it helps to be prepared. And part of meditation is to open us to this mystery. And part of us is to prepare to remain awake even through difficulties. And how will we do in times of difficulties? What unfinished business comes to us? What are the strong habits? Because they really do. And then finally, death as the dissolution of elements. So the earth, our body begins to lose all strength. We're drained of energy. We can't sit up right anymore or support our head. We feel if we're falling or sinking or crushed by a great weight. This was happening to my father at night. He was really frightened by it, like a mountain pressing. We're, we're heavy and uncomfortable. Our pillows have to be higher. The bed doesn't feel right anymore. Our cheeks sink in. Dark stains appear on our te- teeth. The earth element withdraws. And then there's the water element. We lose control of our bodily fluids. Our nose begins to run. We dribble. We become incontinent. We can't move our tongue. Our eyes start to feel dry in their sockets, our lips drawn. We twitch and tremble. Uh, Our bodily smell starts to change. We become hazy. And there's this tremendous kind of sense of loss of dignity for someone that doesn't know. And I can see it in my father's case. Again, that's frightening if you think you're your personality or your body. Then fire. Our mouth and nose dry up completely. The warmth of our body begins to seep away, usually from the feet and the hands toward the heart. A steamy heat can rise from the head. Our breath becomes cold. We can no longer drink or digest anything. The inner experience is as if being consumed in a flame in the middle of a blaze. Very, very common. And then it dissolves into air becomes harder and harder to breathe. The air seems to be escaping from our throat. We begin to rasp and pant. Our in-breaths become short, labored, out-breaths longer. Our eyes roll upward. We become immobilized. We feel ourselves slipping away. Hallucinations, visions arise. And then there's a sense of this great wind that carries us out of our bodies, like a hurricane. And then there's the dissolution into the element of space. And then the clear light, as I was reading to you. It seems that we die as we've lived. Someone said you die in character. You know, so in whatever way you have lived in that way, that way you die. The mystery of death is always here with us, our identity. Every day we go to sleep. Amazing thing, unconscious, and then we wake up. We're born each morning, and we're carried by this stream of life, of grace, all the time, even now. Our thoughts arise and pass, they're born and die. Our feelings are born and die. 
Our perceptions come and go. There's a moment here and then a new moment of life there. If we're not our body or we're not the things, what are we? And how could we find a universal freedom and the great compassionate heart of a Buddha in the midst of it all? Hair in the head and body, nails, teeth, skin, sinews, bones, flesh, kidneys, heart, liver, is that you? When we pay attention, and in the teachings of mindfulness, the Buddha says, the purpose of awareness of death is to see entanglement in our life or suffering, to see its cause and to lead us to learn to be free, to let go. If you only had a short while to live, what would matter to you? What would you do? How would you live? So with mindfulness of death and the body, we begin to let go of what's unessential, inessential, attachments and fears, greed for things that are really unnecessary, hatreds. I mean, when you know you're going to die, the things that upset you don't seem so upsetting anymore. The delusions drop away. You know, as Ramdas's friend, the, whose channel Emmanuel says, when you understand it, death is perfectly safe. <laughs> but most people don't know that. And so the reflection is really to help us to live with a presence and with a respect and with the sense of the preciousness of this life that we have, not to possess it, because we can't possess our children, our bodies, the things we have. Isn't it amazing? In a moment, all that you think you own, you won't own anymore. Period. You know, it's like when somebody who's very, very rich die and they say, well, how much did he leave? Everything, right? (laughs) That's how much you leave. (laughs) Rumi, a poem entitled The One Grain Ant. An ant trembles along with its one grain of wheat, afraid it might lose that, not knowing how wide and covered with grain the threshing floor is. Likewise, you are so devoted to your wheat grain body. That's not all you are. There's much more. Look around with that other eye. Look at Saturn. Look at Solomon. Whatever a human being truly sees, he or she becomes. That is the nature of this existence. When a jar opens into the ocean, it can drown a mountain range. One way of seeing sees only a lonely road. Another sees a home. Another realizes we are always home. One one gauges who's ahead and who's behind. The other sees everything at once reversed so that it so that being last is winning and dying is living. Forget death and worrying. 
forget your beard and your self-importance. Be invisible like the scent of roses that shows where the inner garden is. In the end, what matters most, what's most helpful in the face of death or life, because they're really the same every day, is who we are, not what we believe or what kind of words or ideas or images that we hold, but really what is our being. And so sitting there and holding my father as he tried to stand up, just to stand up enough to go and sit on a little potty next to his bed, you know, um, and then helping him back in bed so he could lie down, being frightened. Mostly I did a lot of loving-kindness meditation, and I taught that to him because he had the, the, the few relationships that he had um, were mostly conflicted. We just did it with his grandchildren, kind of went through Caroline and Rachel and Leo and Tess and Sam and Madeline. And because that's a pretty, it's a beautiful relationship, even though he hasn't seen them much. And I'd name them, I'd do it out loud, you know, picture Sam, little Sammy, or Leo, or Madeline. May he be well, may he be in body and mind, may his heart be filled with loving kindness, and at ease, body and mind, and her heart filled with loving kindness. May she be at peace. And then find me for yourself. In the end, I think all that we can do and give one another is there, what's there in us, in our heart. So let your eyes close, if you would, for a moment. <coughs> Sit and feel your own body and breath. Then a simple question for you. What practice will you do when you face death or any great difficulty? For Gandhi, he chanted the name of God, Ram, Ram, Ram. Will you do loving kindness or follow your breathing or say, oh my God, in some tone? Be aware of what there is within you, how you meet such changes. And how you would like to meet the change of death when it comes, or the great difficulties around you in those moments? What do you want to be reflecting, saying? And finally, let us do some loving-kindness meditation. 
for Gloria, who was here two weeks ago, and now is here, but in a different form, perhaps. And for my father and for the many, many loved ones and friends that you know who have died and those you don't. May you be well. May you be at ease in body and mind. May your heart be filled with loving kindness. May you be at peace. May you be free. Direct it toward yourself. May I be well. May my heart be filled with loving kindness. May I be at ease in body and mind. May I be at peace and free. And again, to anyone else, the whole room, all beings. May you all be well. May you be at ease, body and mind. Wherever you are, may your hearts be filled with loving kindness. May you be at peace. May you let go and learn to be free. 